0: Well it's nice to be amongst you again, just bring greetings from from Bethlehem Baptist, uh, where Colin was meant to be today, but um, he couldn't make it there, so I've arranged for a line dancing this morning and they'll be be keeping busy and they'll wish I'm back soon. (laughs) Hey, um, it's a really cool thing that you're doing going through the book of Revelation, Uh, it's exciting and I just want to give you a little bit of advice, this might go off the record, but What Colin's really hoping for is that every week somebody will say, I've been on the internet, I've read Revelation 13, and this is who the Antichrist is. (laughs) So if if you could all just take turns, it would really swell his heart to know that that you folks are taking this so seriously. So if you could do that every week, um, he'll be blessed. (laughs) Well, anyway, what we're going to do this morning is, uh, as you know, this is going to be your new tradition is that we're going to have the scripture read to us through the computer. Uh, so we will, we will attempt to do that. Here we go. We've got that right.
1: To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam I will give some of the hidden manner. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it.
0: Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, this fifth gospel is indeed uh, John's way in which you share with us the other side of eternity, the image and the pictures of a spiritual world that we are part of, and yet we are still to be part of it in a greater way. And so God, as we put one step forward into this book today, I pray that you would illuminate to us the very heart of the message of what, uh, what Jesus was saying to the church here in Pergamum, and help us to capture the very heart of what God is wanting for us today. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a little bit one-sided, eh? Colin gave me this passage to preach on, and I asked him to preach on a passage from 1 Thessalonians 5.15, which says, be good to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so he owes me. He, he owes me big time. Well, um, I'm going to introduce you to the modern city of Pergamum, and uh, here we have a, uh, an arena, a stadium, if you like. Pergamum, in the day was one of the three largest cities in this whole area, uh, Athens being the other one, and uh, Izmir, Smyrna being the other, other one. And so there's three of these big cities that are being addressed at this time by, by Jesus through John in this letter. Um, I just wanna, wanna say something off the, off, off the side here a little bit. Um, my wife and I went to Turkey about four years ago. And I've got to say, probably the most amazing trip that I've ever been on. Um, Turkey is to the book of Acts what Israel is to the Gospels. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you go traveling around Turkey, you find there are all these places that appear to us in the scriptures from the book of Acts. And because it's a, a 99 point something percent Muslim country, Um, What really distresses us is that you go to these ancient sites and they're relatively disregarded, you know, to go to a place like Cappadocia in the middle of the desert where the early church fathers, St. Basil and St. Gregory and others created these little wee churches carved away in the the soft ground that was there and all the artwork up on the walls and you sort of see the little kids walking in and scratching away on it. You know, and you go, wow! If this was only in the West, this would all be girded and guarded. But um, it's amazing to be able to go to these places and see what it was that the gospel context was spoken into in the day. And of course, what we've got here is a, a picture of a uh, of the common way in which people were entertained. Uh, these great theatres that were built by the Romans were designed to entertain the people to keep them in good order. Believe me, the emperors and the like weren't there just to simply uh, entertain people for their own sake. They knew that by taking their attention and uh, displaying their own strength and their own wealth as emperors, this was their way of controlling the people. So it wasn't just simply saying, what great emperors they were, they wanted to provide entertainment. This is a way in which they controlled the people through the provision of these sorts of uh, civic uh, entertainments, if you like. And right in the heart of most of these cities, there were temples uh, dedicated to the Roman cult. Now, the Roman cult uh, is essentially emperor worship. Okay, so the idea was that it was deemed that an emperor was a god. And so people would go into the Roman temples and they would make a sacrifice to the Roman uh, leader at the time, the Roman emperor. And by doing so, they are showing that they are faithful Roman citizens, committed to Rome and all of its purposes. Uh, in the city of Pergamum, where we are going to be looking at over the next few minutes, uh, there was also a temple dedicated to the, um, the goddess of, uh, called Athenia. And we often associate that in these days with a, a lesser known God, but we've become familiar over years with it, uh, who was also worshipped in the temple of Athena, and that is the god of Nike, N-I-K-E. Some of you are probably wearing them today. <laughs> okay, and Nike means victory, okay? And so if you wanted, it's, always, it's very easy to associate what you're after here. If you want victory in your life, if you want to overcome, you go and worship the god of Nike, okay? And this all comes back from a, a battle that was won uh, against, uh, by the Greeks, I should say, against the Romans hundreds of years before this. Okay, so all of these things were blended into this culture. And here comes this little group called the church, called the Christians, called people of the way, the followers of Jesus. And uh, largely birthed out of um, the Jewish community, uh, this church started to establish itself. And here they are in a context where the cultural uh, icons and the cultural mores and flavors of the day was so far removed from the Gospels and the way in which Jesus had asked people to live that they stood apart very, very quickly. You see, because in these, in these temples, for example, uh, one of the ways in which uh, somebody would show their love and their affection to the goddess Ath- Athenia uh, would be to have sexual relationships with some of the temple prostitutes. And so this was a, a cult that totally absorbed everybody, uh, every part of your being. And uh, it was deemed to be morally acceptable. Uh, No one had any trouble with this. Both men and women participated. And so here we have a a group of Christians coming out of this Jewish context who see holiness and being set apart for God as something of a vital virtue that is all about their Christian faith. And so we look at this, uh, this letter that John has wrote is written at Patmos under the revelation of the Spirit and we find that what hap- what's happening here is uh, John is, is literally channeling Jesus, okay? So it's Jesus speaking to the churches and the seven churches and today this is the second one. And so we find here that there's a, a pattern in which John describes the way in which Jesus is feeling towards the churches and you become familiar with this pattern as we enter into, this, uh, into these uh, words. So we're going to have a look at these words again, and we'll go through them and uh, try, to, uh, try to help you understand these. So to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has sharp double-edged sword. Now, I don't know how far Colin's got into this already, but to the angel of the church, the interesting thing is that John is actually writing to an angel. Does it make sense? He's writing, to the angel of the church. So what he's saying here is that there is a spiritual guardian, a spiritual guardian that oversees the church at Pergamum. Now, we have to be careful how we extrapolate this, how we take it from the book of Revelation and apply it to ourselves. But some could go as far as to say, and I'm quite comfortable with this, is that there is an angel over churches. Okay. Now, it might be that there's an angel over the city of Toronga okay? We don't know. We're not really sure, but we get this idea that uh, in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm, which this book uh, crosses over, okay? It's sort of got one foot in the earth and one foot in the heavenlies, okay? And it's talking about this this peak that we have into the heavenly realms. And we get this impression that there's an angel that is overseeing this city of Pergamum. Now, I kind of I like that, you know? And... Uh, yeah, makes you wonder about some angels somewhere whether they're um, not doing their job right or whatever. But um, this city is blessed. When people talk about this city, Tauranga Papama, Manganui, uh, is the Bible Belt. So, you know, big ups to the angel that's over this area, I've got to say. You know, the angel of the, the sea and the mountains, eh? The surfing angel. You like that? Yeah, you do. But he's writing to the angel, but He's also not taking responsibility away from the people who are in the church. This isn't like saying, hey, dad, you've got a bad family and it's all your fault. He's also talking to the people in the family. He's saying, we're all responsible here for what is going on in this church. And then he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now in the seven letters, you'll find that God is introduced, sorry, Jesus is introduced to us with all these different character traits, okay? And so you'd be the same uh, if I was to introduce um, someone we all know, Ken, and I know Ken well enough to give him a hard time. I'd say, this is a message from Ken, the guy who knows how to grow kiwi fruit, all right? This is a message from Ken, the guy who loves four-by-fours, fast cars, and uh, motorbikes, yeah? All right? So, and I could keep, keep rattling out all these different attributes about Ken, but I could also say, this is the Ken who doesn't like people working for him who are slackers. <laughs> I know Ken well enough to know that. And that's fair enough. Every boss would have the same. So, so what, what uh, John is doing here is he's introducing the nature and the character of Jesus through these letters by introducing different parts of his character. But we're being introduced this morning to uh, the God. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus simultaneously as the one who has a double-edged sword, okay? Pretty simple illustration, isn't it? You know, you get a sword that's just got a sharp edge on one edge, sharp on one edge. Obviously, that's not double-edged, but a double-edged sword is far more effective because it cuts both ways. Pretty simple stuff, isn't it? So we're talking here about authority. We're talking here about power. We're talking here about judgment and the authority over Life and death. Okay, so all of a sudden, the image that we have of God here is being increased to like, okay, we've got to take this seriously. This isn't just, you know, hey Jesus, how's my homeboy? How's it hanging? You know, you, that sort of stuff. We've got to get past that and realize that the God Almighty isn't just the God Almighty. Okay, He's the God who we have to revere, bow down before, and acknowledge that He is the Lord of all. And he has ultimate authority. And so we're getting this description painted for us today through this letter that is being written to the church in Pergamum. So let's hold on to that image first, and then we move into what it is that, uh, in this pattern that we have, the, the church is told what it's doing well, and then it's told what it needs to work on. So, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Wow. Wow. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, this is the only time in Scripture that we're told that Satan has a home and address, in the city of Pergamum. And we think, hey, that's cool. Let's go find out where he lives, okay? And if we can sort him out, well, the rest of the world would be doing well, wouldn't it? Okay? But it also makes this, uh, this picture of the city of Pergamum as being one that's particularly evil. Well, you think if the devil was in the neighborhood, the house values would go down, wouldn't you? Yeah? Evil comes to town, house values go down. All right, so we've got to be careful with this because what, what, um, what is being said here is more in reference to the little bit of history that's identified in the middle of this passage here. It talks here about a a witness by the name of Antipas. And he's deemed to be the first martyr that died on this area of coast where these seven churches are. And so because of this, uh, John is identifying as this being a place of evil, an origin of evil. And when you talk about an origin of evil, you're talking about a beginning place, a Genesis. And so it might be that we could see a similar um, picture here of so the Garden of Eden is a genesis for us, Adam and Eve, but also a genesis for evil to come into our world. Okay, so here we have uh, the Garden of Eden, a place of origins, a place of beginnings, a place of, of, uh, of, of literally of genesis, a turanga a place to stand, a place to begin. And Adam and Eve lived there, but the devil also resided there. Here we've got a similar picture. We've got this happening in Pergamon. We've got uh, the church being there, but the devil also resides there. Evil resides there. Okay? It's not a literal, they call it, technically, they call it an anthropomorphism. Can everybody say that? Anthropomorphism. It's cool. It um, means that um, um, a spiritual being is manifest in human form. Okay? This is not what's being described here. It's, a, it's an illustrative, for an illustrative purpose. describing how it is that evil occurred in this city. And one time when evil occurs, it can become a norm. You know how it is? When something, something goes wrong in a family, you know, if there's family violence for argument's sake, that becomes a norm, you know, and I know over the years I've talked to people who have been victims and you know, they say, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so, he hit me. But that, that's, that's pretty normal, isn't it? That's what happens in families, isn't it? So it normalizes stuff. So what's being said here is that evil is now recognized as normal. Christians are now a target. We kill one, we can kill a dozen. And it makes no difference. So that's why Satan lives here. Okay? Um, so what was uh, being said, though, about Antipas is that he was a great witness Clearly, he got in trouble for something, okay? And we've seen a bit of that happening in the newspaper recently, haven't we? People getting in trouble uh, for sticking their head out, essentially saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so here we have uh, one person who's persecuted to the point of being put to death, but the church around Antipas didn't shrink back, okay? And they're being commended for that. They're being told, during the time of that great persecution, when Antipas was martyred, you didn't pull back. You stood with him. And in doing so, uh, the church has been commended. Been commended for hanging in there during a time of persecution. And that's something of a lesson for the church right throughout history, isn't it? Because as we know, persecution comes in waves throughout history. Okay, And we're just probably at the stage now where we're starting in the West to ride a new wave We've got the beginning really of a fresh wave of persecution occurring, okay? Particularly when it affects, when, we, when people are getting in trouble for how we make other people feel. You notice that? Persecution used to be defined by the pain that you inflicted upon me, or the, um, the fact that you wouldn't give me a job, or you wouldn't give me a visa to visit your country, or you threw me in jail for my beliefs, but now we're in trouble for how we make others, pe- other people feel. Okay, which is a, a, quite a new phenomenon, really. You know, it's the, it's the whole art of being offended. Yeah, really, truly, really, isn't it? It's an art. And as soon as you're offended, it's like, oh, my gosh, I better withdraw my statement. I'm not allowed to say what is blindingly obvious because somebody else might get hurt and feelings, oh, that's so, so precious. We've really got to look after them. Okay? Well, I might sound like a bit of a fanatic by even talking like that, but um, the thing is that now it's feelings, isn't it? It's all about people's feelings. And uh, I think in the, the irony of uh, Israel Falou's case in recent times has been that uh, people have sacked him because they've said people are going to go to hell, a place they don't even believe in. So it's like, you've just sacked me for saying you're going to go to somewhere that you don't even believe exists and you're offended by that. That's a bit of an oxymoron, really. It's a bit of a tension. I'm just waiting for the liars to take him to court next. I'm waiting for the adulterers to take him to court, waiting for the thieves, they can all line up and be offended too, okay? So what we're in a position now is to see how this shift is occurring with respect to being offended and how Christianity is now gonna be marginalized for that reason, okay? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just telling you what we were already experiencing together. So, Jesus carries on and he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, this is a reference to a well-known Jewish story that comes out of Numbers 22 right through to 25 okay but there's a challenge in this because when you read through those chapters looking for reference to this particular activity you won't find it and you go well what's going on here the book of Revelation is citing something that I can't find in the lives of Balak and Balaam. Um, Balak was the king of the Moabites Okay. And he saw that the nation of Israel was encroaching upon his land. And so he got Balaam, a prophet, and he said, I will pay you to curse the Israelites because whoever you curse is cursed and whoever you bless is blessed. And uh, so he had this reputation as somebody who knew the living God, that is the God of Israel, and he was asked to curse this nation. Now, there's a, there's a fun story in there as well about how uh, his donkey spoke to him and all that sort of interesting stuff. Uh, But when he went to curse Israel, he couldn't. Seven times, seven times in all, he went to curse them, but he couldn't. He ended up blessing them because the Spirit of God came upon him. And so this is a a really cool story. But there's nowhere in there does there seem to be anything about um, Balaam telling Balak that... um, we're going to get the Israelites involved in sexual immorality. However, within the traditions of Judaism, there's there's other books. We've got the Torah, which is essentially the books of the law. That's the Jewish name for the, the Old Testament or the first five books, I should say. And then you've got the Mishnah, which is really a reference book, a commentary upon the stories that we read in scripture. In the Mishnah, there's a story that tells us a little bit extra about what goes on in, um, in this story about uh, Balaam and Balak and the cursing of Israel. And um, it comes to us from a commentator who was around, uh, sorry, a Jewish commentator, and uh, he cites some writings, There's some writings that describe this, and I hope I'm going to help you out here. It is believed, even though it's not written in Numbers 22, 3, and 4, and 5, it is believed that this is also what Balaam did. He said that Balaam gave counsel to Balak to cause the Israelites to um, seek out women of ill repute, to sell food and drink at a low price, and this people will come and eat and drink and be drunken and lie with them. And then in doing so, they will deny their God and they will quickly be delivered into the hands of the Moabites. So this is a little bit of extra that we don't have in the Bible, but this is what is being referenced to in the book of Revelation. Um, it is believed, strongly believed that Balaam, for all the good that he did, and he didn't curse the Israelites, what he actually did do was say to Balak the king, look, if you want to beat Israel, here's their weak point. Get the men onto some drink, put some lovely women around them who are freely giving them anything they want, and, um, and they, will, they will perish that way. They will submit to other gods. And um, the history that continues to go on around this, this story is that um, uh, they made them drink wine and then they were all stirred up and got all lusty over the woman. But before they were allowed to have their way with the woman, they had to bow down to the Moabite gods and then they were allowed in to where the women were, okay? So that was the story that was commonly held amongst the Israelites. And um, it was a solid conviction. And here we find it being cited back to us. So once we understand that, now we go back to the scripture here and we say, nevertheless, that's what Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now does it make a bit more sense? Yeah, but it's a little bit unusual for us, eh? Because we like to find these things firmly, solidly in, in scripture. So we go back to the story of Balak and Balaam, and we don't find it there. Yet it's found in the oral traditions and the written traditions of the Jews themselves. So that's where it appears. But now this makes sense. So how do we apply this? Well, what we're talking about here is essentially seduction. And the Jews who were living in these towns like Pergamum and Smyrna and Ephesus and these other books that you're gonna read through in a, uh, sorry, these other cities you're gonna hear about in the coming weeks, um, the Jews lived there a very distinct life. But when Christianity came, there was a uh, a change in the way that the the, the the Jewish community was living its life. It no longer had to be submitted to the Old Testament laws. It no longer had to keep the, the 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 codes regarding eating or clothing or Sabbath worship, etc. Okay, and so they were now people who are living under Christ's sacrifice. He died for sin. He gave us a free pass on sin. But what happens is that liberty starts to take over to the point where people say, Jesus died for my sin so that I can be forgiven. And there's a very short hop into this uh, way of thinking where you say, Jesus died so that I can sin rather than Jesus died for my sin. So are you with me on this? And so this is essentially what is being described when uh, the church is being seduced in the same fashion as Balaam and Balak had this discussion about. So we find this going on and, um, and it's something that has always been a struggle for the church. It's always been a struggle for the church. Uh, generally speaking, Protestant churches over uh, four, 500 years now of history since uh, Luther... Uh, made his mark against the Catholic Church, Protestant churches have always been very strong about holiness. Um, And in tradition, uh, Catholic churches, for example, have been more along the line of, okay, you sin, as long as you go back to the priest to make your confession, you'll be okay. Okay? Now, this is a huge generalization, I know, and I'm probably a bit naughty even raising it. But over 500 years, the Protestant churches be more oriented towards holiness and keeping ourselves pure. But there's always been groups who have said, look, um, it's about us having a good intention and a good heart towards God, valuing the sacrifice of Christ. And because His sacrifice was so complete, it doesn't really matter what I do with my, my body. I can eat what I want. I can have uh, sexual relationships with whoever I wish. That's not really an issue. But here, Uh, Jesus is saying through John that he is dead against this, okay? Because what defines a Christian, when you look at the council that was in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, when they were trying to work out what do we do with the Old Testament law, they came away and they said, look, um, we want you to love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your neighbor as yourself. Uh, We want you to refrain from sexual immorality Want you to refrain from eating meat sacrificed to idols and remember the poor. That was four instructions that defined the church. But sexual purity was one of those. And people think, oh yeah, Christians always hung up about sex. Well, sex defines us. Very much so. Sex, our sexuality defines us. Uh, but how we live and contain and constrain our sexuality is a very defining thing. And so what, what is being argued against here is that people are saying, it's, it's okay, as long as you're forgiven, you can do whatever you want. Does it make sense? But Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that. Now, just to reinforce this even further, um, another group of people is, are raised in this conversation says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you go, who are they? Hey, Grace, who are they? Right, I'll tell you who they are. Grace wants to know, okay? If we go to the book of Acts, the very early part of the church, there was a time there uh, when the church was running out of manpower, okay? They had the, the apostles who were teaching the scriptures and praying, and yet they had to have a group who would tend to the distribution of food. And so they appointed a group of men, all right, to do this task. And I'll, I'll just take you back there and show you this, it's quite, quite important. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be of this, full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, the person who we're talking about here, the Nicolaitans, is Nicholas, okay? So Nicholas was set aside as a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. but he went astray. Okay, he went astray. And how did he go astray? Well, his sin was very, very similar to, um, to the sin that we've been describing a moment ago. Um, but the Nicolaitan doctrine is, uh, here's a good word for you, Gnosticism. Yeah, does everybody say Gnosticism? Okay, it comes from a Greek word Gnosis, which means to know. Okay? And the way that this works is is very similar. It's saying we are essentially split into two parts. I have a physical being, and I have a spiritual being. Now, within Hebrew thinking, these parts of our body are fused together as one. Okay? It's very Greek to think of ourselves split apart in body, soul, and spirit. But the Gnostics. Said that as long as I know in my spirit that Christ has died for me, and long as I can stay true to Him in my heart and my mind, I can do whatever I want with my body, because the body is going to perish, the body is going to return to the ground, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So, and we know that your spirit is far more um, of greater far more value and uh, has eternity. Uh, to look forward to. It's more real than our physical being, we know that. If we had a nuclear explosion over the city today, what would remain? Our spirit, okay? So they said, this makes it more important. So therefore, on the basis of this gnosis, on the basis of this knowledge, I can do what I want with my body. I can take it up to the, the, the temple prostitute and I can do whatever I want there because in my heart I know that Christ died for my sin. So again, we've got this, this, uh, this splitting, if you like, this dichotomy. And um, we run into this even in our day to day language. You know, we, we say things like, um, oh, so and so died the other day. Oh, really? Did they know the Lord? Yeah, yeah. I remember a youth <coughs> group, uh, Easter camp, 1957. He responded to an altar call. Yeah, yeah, I think he knew the Lord. Yeah? This is the way we think, eh? Yeah, we wanna project upon people the grace of God. We wanna believe the highest all the time that God's grace is gonna take somebody who might've actually, you know, declared their hatred for God in the church, but back in 1957, we saw him respond, yeah, he knows the Lord. And so to know Jesus is to, in a Greek way, is to have, have Jesus split into a part of your life. To know Jesus in a Hebrew way is a complete rendering together of the, of the whole of the gospel. You know, James says, uh, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You can look at me and learn what it means to be a Christian. And we wrestle with this difference between this Greek and Hebrew thinking. Many of you have uh, been at Bethlehem long enough, you would have heard me speak about this before. But this is how Greek and Hebrew thinking works. When you say to your child, um, will you tidy your room? Yep. Yep, yep. And they don't do it. You know you've got to tidy your room? Yep, yep, yep. And they don't do it. That's Greek. That's a Greek conversation. Okay? And uh, in Hebrew thinking, you haven't heard... The instruction until the task is complete so a mother will say did you hear me say you need to tidy your room <laughs> yeah that's Greek thinking but if the mother says I see that you heard me why because I checked your room and it's clean that's a good Hebrew okay and that's the way God thinks yeah that's the way God thinks So God's always interested in us having this fusion of what we believe and what we do together, okay? Because we're not saved by just simply a knowledge. We're saved by a complete being, being immersed in the things of the kingdom, okay? But it's all about, remember, it's all about grace. We don't earn our way, but we prove who we are by what we do, yeah? It would have been so much easier to talk about being good to one another, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey? It's like, oh. People go, gee, people say, oh, I lost them after those caves in Cappadocia, you know? Like, yeah. So what is, what is the um, church told to do? It's told to, give me a repent, will you, Roger? Hey? Yeah, that's it. They're told to repent, okay? They're told to repent. Let's try this again. Therefore, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight fight against them with the sword of my mouth, okay? Remember that sword, two-edged sword? We're in trouble, judgment, all right? Okay, so this God of grace, this God of love, loves us enough to say, look, Discipline and keeping your head and your heart in the right place is really important, and um, we can't withhold that from God. We can't say, "God, you're not entitled to that," because everywhere we live our lives, we have the same thing going on. For us, you raise children uh, with a with a consequence consequence consequence-free life. You're just going to raise. You might as well ring prison now. Say, "Hey, can you make a booking for my kids?" You know. Yeah. You see, so um, people with cell phones, they go straight to prison. (laughs) They go straight, straight to prison. Sword of the mouth. All right, okay. We're getting towards the end now, but we've got some interesting things to say. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden mana. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, so we're talking here about uh, overcoming. And if you've got ears to hear, you should be listening. Okay, again, we want to be listening, not with Greek ears, but with Hebrew ears, so that our thinking, our hearing, and our actions are fused together. Yeah? It's, it's, we, we, we want that for our kids why wouldn't God want it for his kids okay but let's, uh, let's just pick up on these, these things, hidden manna. now this is an image that comes from the days of the wanderings in the desert where the people of Israel having left Egypt wanted a desert and had to be fed supernaturally and so every morning this manna, this, this white bread like substance was found in the desert and they would, they would eat it uh, but when, when this miracle first happened, God told Moses to take some of this manna, put it in a container, and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. And this was a, uh, a big box that represented the covenant of God with the people of Israel, and God's very presence was there. And he said, put it in there, because this will remind future generations of how I provided for you, okay? So when the angel is telling um, John, to tell the church in Pergamum uh, that you will be given this hidden manna. This is what it's referring to. Okay, it's referring to a, a, a special uh, grace, a special covenant, a special blessing, and special provision. All right, so what he's saying is, if you do this, like I did for your ancestors, I will provide for you. That's a huge thing to say when you're a people who are persecuted. Because it doesn't take much to be persecuted and people whip away food from you or whatever might be needed or shelter, saying, I will provide for you and I will give you this hidden mana, okay? So supernaturally. The next one is, um, he says, I will give you a white stone. And we go, oh, thanks, cool. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I was was, um, hunting down out out of Hokitika um, in April and went up to this... this, um, this place called Ivory Lake, and it was voted um, the Alpine Hut of the Year two years ago. It's absolutely beautiful. There's no animals there, but it's absolutely beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't literally see a rabbit. Uh, In fact, the weka hanging around our tent was looking really tasty after a week. Um, But it had these beautiful white ivory rocks, and I took a couple home. They're sort of translucent, Uh, so it sort of reminds me of this. But these rocks were very symbolic under Roman rule, uh, if you ever wanted to select somebody or somebody had favor, they would take a bag and they'd have black rocks and white rocks. And if you drew out a white rock, you, you won the raffle, basically. Yeah, you might be given a day off or you might be given something as a special reward. And, and that's how it works. So what's being said here is that you will be blessed. You will have God's favor upon you. Just wanna give you a little story, which will probably be the one you'll go away with at the end of the day, but uh, it talks about these rocks and the Roman times. If a Roman, um, a group of Roman soldiers, they usually operated in groups of 10. So a centurion would have 10 platoons of 10, okay? 100, 100 men. Now if a platoon had done something wrong, either they badly or they disobeyed orders, it was of no advantage to the centurion leader to take all these 10 men and kill them for their disobedience, right? Because he'll soon have a very small army. But what they used to do is uh, to punish a platoon is you would give them 10 rocks in a bag and one of them was black. And they all had to stand in a circle and they'd pull out a rock, put it behind their back and then all together they'd go like that. And whoever had the black rock, the other nine had to kill him. That's where we get the word decimate from. Deci, ten? Yeah. So if your, if your platoon was decimated, that meant that one in ten got killed. But the worst part is that you had to kill your mates. Yeah? Now, don't, don't get worried that the word mate doesn't come into this, okay? It's, it's decimate, okay? It's not decibro, you know, or decimate, okay? All right, it's decimate. But it's a pretty wicked scenario, eh? But fascinating, isn't it? Decimate. We just talk about decimate all the time. Well, you yeah, know, you talk about the All Blacks decimating the, the French or the, the Irish, maybe. Yeah, at the World Cup. But um, then you're left with this, um, this um, white stone and this new name, okay? And Colin's going to be talking a little bit about the new name. Uh, I think it's next week. Uh, in, in uh, looking at this next church. And he talks about a, a new name that you'll be given. So I won't, I won't uh, steal all his thunder. Um, Got to leave him something to do. Um <laughs> After today, I felt that I've sort of explained the book of Revelation. You can have the rest of the year off, you know. uh, um, But I want to want to finish it there. Um, I think it's exciting what you're doing, what you're learning. And um, but the big challenge for us is to take lessons from all of these churches because every one of these churches, we're all susceptible to the errors that they took upon themselves. Errors. Errors as in thinking, doctrine, and sins being just deliberate actions of disobedience. So think about how easy it is for us to travel down that road of seduction, okay? Those of you who are excited about the last series of Game of Thrones, I think of you specifically. (laughs) I'm not old enough to watch Game of Thrones, that's what I tell tell the youth group, okay? It's not... uh, but that's what I mean by seduction, okay? It's so easy, isn't it? So easy to be seduced in the world we live in. And uh, and yet we want to have our hearts that are, that are true. We want to have our hearts that are uh, focused upon the things of Jesus and be, be pure and holy and set apart for Him. And uh, He'll give you that secret mana. He'll provide for you always, even when others won't because of your stand for Jesus. So let me pray for you.